Have you ever experienced any kind of suffering in your life? Ever had a bad week? Ever had anything make you cry? Ever had anything make you upset or angry? Uh, blow your top or go lock yourself in your room? Have you had any trials this week? Have you had any troubles this month? Have you had any heartache this year? See, trials and troubles and heartache, they're a normal part of life. We all experience them. But what are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to deal with suffering? How are we supposed to respond? Well, there's a lot of interesting ideas out there in Christianity, some that sound a little bit strange. One of them is this. The reason that you're suffering is because you don't have enough faith. It's the whole idea of you just need to, to name it and claim it, and everything will be okay. Someone described it this way. If you think negative thoughts or are lacking in faith, you will suffer or not get what you want. But on the other hand, if you think positive thoughts or just have enough faith, then you can have health, wealth, and happiness now. So if you just think good thoughts, then you won't suffer and you'll get what you want now. There's even one well-known TV personality in the religious world who has said to his guest, if you will make a donation to my cause on your credit card, God will wipe out your credit card debt. I mean, I'm no financial genius, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way. You cannot just think positive thoughts or have enough faith feelings and suffering will stay away. Other people say that Christians should just suffer with a smile. We should just always smile all the time, no matter what we're going through. It is true, the Apostle Paul said that we as believers should not mourn in the same way as people who don't have hope in Jesus. Our grieving and our mourning should be different. But it also doesn't mean that you should walk around the funeral home with a, a smile plastered on your face, telling everyone in the family, oh, well, she's in a better place. That's usually not an encouraging sentence, especially when there is pain and hurt. You see, pain is real. Hurt is real. And it is not biblical to say that Christians should always have a smile on their, faith, on their face in the middle of suffering and pain. Other people say, just let it all out. Man, just let everything out that you can possibly think of. All, all your pain, all of your worry, all of your stress. Just let it all out all the time to anybody that will listen to you. Stephen Cole writes, We're told to vent all our anger and our rage and our bitterness. People are even encouraged to rail at God with the assurance that He can take it. Tell Him how ticked off at Him you really are. I wouldn't advise that. <laughs> All of those types of thinking, they might provide a little bit of temporary help to your feelings and your emotions, but they are all unbiblical. They're all fake. They're all phony. And they will not ultimately help your heart and your mind and your soul. So what does the Bible say about how we're supposed to deal with suffering? Well, at least one New Testament scholar says the Bible doesn't say anything or at least that it doesn't say the right thing. Bart Ehrman grew up in an evangelical church. As a teenager, he professed faith in Christ, professed to be born again. 
He went on to Moody Bible Institute and, and later to Wheaton College, the alma mater of Billy Graham and many other Christian leaders. After that, he got his master's and his Ph.D. and his, his theological, theological degrees from Princeton Seminary. The interesting thing about Ehrman's today is that he no longer describes himself as a born-again Christian, but he describes himself as an agnostic. In 2008, he wrote a book with the following title, God's Problem, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. Ehrman's transformation from being evangelical to agnostic came as a result of his constant wrestling with the issue of suffering. From his standpoint, the Bible gives a lot of answers for suffering, but he says they all contradict one another. And because they contradict one another, that kind of cancels them all out. Therefore, there's not really an answer for suffering in the Bible. Ehrman once wrote this, We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every minute there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave three, ma three million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects. And where is God? And then he says this, to say that he eventually will make right all that is wrong seems to me now to be pure, wishful thinking. You see, there's no answer today for Ehrman when it comes to suffering because he's decided that there is no answer. That God has not given an answer. There's no yes, there's no maybe. For him, the answer is, is no. And maybe today there's not an answer that you would be satisfied with for suffering because what you're looking for most with suffering is something that's just kind of temporary, just something that's kind of surface that will help your emotions and your feelings for just a little while. You see, Ehrman says that the Bible contradicts itself and does not give an answer for the issue of suffering. But on the contrary, the Bible gives a network a beautiful network of truth. A network of truth to support any person in any type of suffering. A network of, of help and support and truth and confidence and hope that's not based on wishful thinking, but it's based on saving faith. This morning we're going to look at one aspect of that network. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 6. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice. You may have heard the phrase, oftentimes, opposites attract. This is true for Christianity. We are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We are called to hate sin and love our enemies. We're called to pray and wait, and we're also called to pray and, and be alert. But maybe one of the strangest things that we see, these opposites in Christianity, is the marriage of joy and suffering. That life in general, but especially life in Christ, is going to be full of, of glory and grief, and happiness and heartache, pleasure and pain, and sunshine and sorrow. 
Peter's writing to people who were experiencing a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, a lot of trials, a lot of troubles, a lot of heartaches, and he wants to encourage them. And how does he encourage them? Well, he encourages them by telling them they need to greatly rejoice in this. Well, what is this? Well, just a few sentences before this, Peter told them that they needed to remember that they had been born again, that they had new life in Jesus Christ, that their life had been changed. They were no longer in darkness. They were no longer dead, but they were alive in Christ. And so he's telling them, you need to greatly rejoice in the fact that you have been born again. In other words, what he's saying is this, you used to be dead in your sin, but now you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ, who on one real day in history rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then a few days later received execution, a brutal execution for the sin of the world. And then three days later, rose from the grave. He conquered death. And so if your faith is in him, that means when you die, you won't really die. You'll live forever. And Peter says, greatly rejoice in that. Greatly rejoice that you now have life in Jesus. You once were dead in your sin, but now you have an inheritance. An inheritance that cannot perish. An inheritance that cannot decay. An inheritance that cannot fade away. An inheritance that is being kept in the protective hands of the one who created everything that exists. Peter says, greatly rejoice in that. You see, this is not wishful thinking he is giving them. For us today, prophecy and, and history and the Spirit of God have authenticated these things. This faith that Peter has and, and tens of thousands since then. But this is not wishful thinking. This is saving faith. This is real. Peter is writing discouraged Christians and he's saying you need to greatly rejoice and your salvation. You need to be really, really, really glad that you have been born again. And why is that important? Well, see, the reality is I do need to, as a believer, care. And I need to be connected to groups who are doing things, practical things, to provide clean water, to provide food and shelter to people who are in need. I need to be encouraged that, that scientists are, are finding new ways to predict storms that are on their way, disasters that are coming. But as much as I might be encouraged and as much as I might need to care, none of those things can save a person's soul. You see, if I'm really going to love the world, as it seems that Ehrman says God doesn't, if I really am going to love the world, then I need to not just love their bodies, I need to love their souls. Because regardless of how much clean water they get, regardless of how many safety standards are met, eventually our bodies still die. They don't last forever on this earth. I should prayerfully strive to be a part of meeting people's basic needs so that the door might open that they might have their greatest need met. And what is that greatest need? This is what Jesus said. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What if I were to gain clear, clean water? Or what if I were to gain induction into the honor society? 
Or what if I were to gain the, the winning shot of the game? Or, or a new smartphone? Or a pay raise? Or better health coverage? Or maybe escape a natural disaster? Or survive an accident? Maybe even beat a terrible disease? What if I'm able to do all of those things, but I'm not right with God? What have I gained? I have gained some wonderful things, some really, really, really good things, but things that will only be good until I die. You might be thinking, man, let's be sure to put Minister of Encouragement under Dow's name outside on the sign. Man, I'm just so encouraged right now. I'm going to die. Thanks, Dow. Appreciate that reminder. But don't miss the picture here. Peter is someone who endured a tremendous amount of suffering in his life, physical suffering. But he discovered in Jesus that there was more to this life than suffering. He discovered in Jesus there was more to this life than just living and dying. Peter discovered in the person of Jesus Christ all the answers that he needed. He discovered that his salvation in Jesus was the answer to everything. I am saved. I am being saved. And one day I will completely and gloriously be saved. In other words, Peter didn't have wishful thinking. He had saving faith. And his saving faith helped him understand the math of suffering. What is the math of suffering? Look back at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You greatly rejoice, even in the midst of trials, even though things are not going right. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. You see the disciples raising their hands. Sign me up, Jesus. When do we start? Boy, this sounds great. John Patton was a missionary in the 1800s to a, a group of remote islands about 1,000 miles northeast of Australia. There was a Mr. Dixon who was opposing Patton's idea of going to these remote islands where there were lots of cannibals. This was Patton's response to Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> That's a good way to start, right? Sure, Mr. Dixon's going to have his attention now. Then Patton goes on to say this. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. So, suffering, affliction, and now cannibalism. I think I'm going to find a new religion, right? It sounds heavy. But listen, God may not call you to be another John Patton. He might, and if so, great. We'll be excited, and we'll support you, and we'll praise the Lord. But regardless, the truth that we have here from Jesus, the no-spin, real truth that Jesus gives his disciples and still gives his disciples today is this. A normal Christian life will be full 
of joy and grief. But a normal, eternal Christian life only has one of those, and the one is joy. Don't forget what Peter just said. Even though now for a little while you have been distressed by trials. Just for a little while. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. We do not lose heart. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. Yes, our trials right now, they're real. And yes, they're right here in front of us. And yes, we have to deal with them right now. But we also as believers have to remember that right now will not always be right now. That we look at what's happening right now. We deal with what's happening right now. But we also keep our eyes to what is not happening right now. And what will happen. We lift our eyes in the middle of this moment, beyond this moment, because we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. Peter says, our eyes need to be up. Why? Look at verse 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith. The old hymn says what? My faith looks up to thee. Peter is telling them that, that your faith needs to look up to Jesus Christ. How do you know if you have been born again? How do you know if you've been born again? Here's, here's a pretty good indicator. Track your life. Track all the times that you are looking up, greatly rejoicing in your salvation. And then track all the times that you are looking around you at all of your circumstances and whining and complaining and grumbling and being afraid and worried and distressed. And look at which track is winning. It doesn't mean that we don't have bad days. It doesn't mean that we don't have bad months or bad years. But if we have a bad life, if trials define our character and our attitude, where is the gospel? Where is the hope? Where is Jesus? Peter is trying to encourage these Christians who were suffering. They had trials. They had troubles. They had heartaches. Life was tough. But he was trying to encourage them. They had hope. They had something to look to. They had something to look up to. And why would that kind of joy-filled hope be important. Why is it so valuable? Look what he says next. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Most of us have seen and heard the commercials, right? Or, or seen the guys out on the corner spinning the signs up in the, in the air. You know, gold is at an all-time high. Come turn in your old gold jewelry for cash right now. It's true. Gold is probably the most valuable, most durable substance in the universe. But earthly gold will one day decay. In the second letter, Peter said this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, a day is coming when our gold jewelry won't be at a high rate. Because it won't exist. Our possessions won't exist. What we own right now today won't exist. Our accomplishments, our degrees, our education, everything will be gone. Our financial investments will perish and decay and they will not have value. They will perish. But 
Not so the faith of the redeemed. See, that's what Patton was saying. Patton was saying, you can take everything away from me and I will lose nothing because I have gained Christ. Christ is my greatest possession. He is my greatest gain. Peter's trying to help these discouraged, down-suffering Christians. You have an amazing treasure. You've been born again. You have a living hope in Jesus Christ. It cannot be taken away from you. The faith of redeemed is more precious than gold. How do we know that? Look what he says next. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. You know why gold and silver are are so precious? It's because they've been through the fire. That's what makes them precious. See, the fire burns off all the impurities, and what's left is this dazzling, precious gold and silver. And Peter says, our faith is more dazzling. Our faith is more precious than gold and silver, but our faith still has to go through the fire. Theoretically, all of us want the the gold of God in our lives, but none of us really want to go through the fire that's necessary to get the gold. But see, the fire is what proves our faith. The, The fire is what helps us see that our faith in Jesus Christ is real. The fire is what helps us see that our delight in God is real. Remember our guys from last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were about to be executed in a furnace for refusing to bow down to the gods of the king. Remember what we read in Daniel? Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, but, they said, if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods. In other words, they said our hands right now, are, our lives are in the hands of God. Nothing can touch our lives. We are in the hands of God. And even if this furnace takes our life, our faith will just be more dazzling and more precious because we'll actually be with God. When Paul says, I gain Christ when I die, it's not a joke. It's not a catchy church slogan. He wasn't trying to start a a worldwide ministry and get people behind him. He really believed that death meant he got Christ all the more. Wayne Grudem says this, Genuine faith is more valuable to God than gold because he is a God who delights in being trusted. See, my sadness for Bart Ehrman is this. His agnostic beliefs seem to be born out of the fact that he feels like God has not answered a question that he thinks he deserves an answer to. Or at the very least, that God has not answered the question the way he wants the question answered. So, how about we take a moment just to look in the mirror? How about us? When we look at at the normal way that we function on a a weekly basis, I'll be be gracious, a monthly basis, do we look more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or do we look more like Bart Ehrman? Are we constantly saying, God, you're not answering this the way I want it to be answered. This is not happening at my job or my home or my church or in the community the way I think it should be happening. So God, I need an answer. Is that our attitude toward the things in life? 
Or do we delight in God in the middle of everything going wrong? Now look, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip. All of us struggle with focusing on Christ instead of focusing on our circumstances. All of us. Hey, I did yesterday. I probably did this morning. We all struggle with keeping our attention on Jesus instead of our circumstances. But if we're going to be believers, that struggle should change over the years. We shouldn't grow older in Christ and be more bitter about life. Our faith should grow. Our hope should grow because we are starting to see what we have actually gained in Jesus Christ. Peter's trying to help some really discouraged Christians to have hope. And he tells them, greatly rejoice in the fact that you've been born again. And that's not a small thing. See, the reality is what we should want is for God to keep burning off that fear and burning off that worry and burning off that pride and burning off that distrust. And that we would just be people who were striving to have joy in Jesus. Striving to have joy in Jesus regardless of how difficult our spouse or our parents or our children may be. Striving to have joy in Jesus regardless of how difficult our finances or our health may be. Striving to have joy in Jesus regardless of how bad things are with the economy or the government or anything else. Why? Well, why should we be striving to have so much joy in Jesus? We see as believers, we know that we won't be always striving. One day, the striving really will be over. Look what Peter says in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has promised eternal life to those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Eternal life does not have the harassing or the suffering of trials and troubles and heartaches. Eternal life does not have grief. Eternal life only has joy. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943 for his resistance against the Nazi regime in Germany. Two years later, just a few weeks before World War II ended, he was executed by being hanged. When they came to get him, he pulled one of his fellow prisoners aside, and this is what he said to him. This is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. This is the end. I'm getting ready to be ushered out. These guys are going to walk me down the hall, and they're going to kill me. But my life is just beginning. You see, the hope of Palm Sunday, every Palm Sunday, for the last 2,000 years is this. Blessed Hosanna, here comes the one in the name of the Lord, and he comes with life. He comes with satisfying life. He comes not with grief. He comes not with sorrow. But he comes with eternal joy. He comes with life that lasts forever. That is the greatest answer for suffering I've ever heard. And it is not wishful thinking. Because we do not celebrate a myth 
or a fairy tale or a legend this week. We celebrate the person of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And in him, we have a living hope for every moment of life, suffering and good, happy and sad, sickness and health. There is no hope like the hope we have in Jesus. Let's pray.